Thank you so much for being here tonight. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, Pastor Lynn and a few off of our lead team, they are in Florida for a retreat with our um, some groups of uh, uh, churches we associate with. And they're there and they're getting to hopefully learn a lot and not play at Disney World too much. The temptation is nearby where they're at. Uh, but it's my pleasure to be with you guys tonight. And, and I just wanted to start off a little bit different. Real quick, we have Mike Runners. Um, and, and there's a lot of us here. I know a lot of you are doing this with me as well. We're going through experiencing God. And we've been doing the study. And we're a little bit into the study. And I just wanted to give a chance just to say, yay God, here's what's going on in my life. Maybe here's some way that God has worked in, in your life in the last week. Maybe a truth that God has revealed to you in the last little bit. If you've got one of those sort of yay God kind of stories, just slip your hand up. If you want to share it with the rest of us, here's what God is doing in my life. Anybody? I know, yeah, there's one back there. Literally a Mike runner. Mike is running. I'm quick, huh? Pardon my, my voice. Um, I'm struggling. But um, my husband and I have been in a small group for, gosh, five years now. And I have felt the prodding that the Lord has wanted us to step out and kind of take our own group. And my husband was somewhat reluctant. And I prayed about it and said, I really feel this is something the Lord wants us to do. He's in real estate, had nine deals cancel. Um, a day before we committed to taking a group on our own for this Experiencing God, um, he had the best day in real estate he's had since we've been in Arizona. Wow. Wow. Very cool. Here's one. Anybody else? You can slip your hand up. We can get ready. This is a little different. Um, within the last couple of days, God's shined the light on an area that he wants to work with me on, things that I didn't even know existed, things that I had buried and kind of just pushed away and ignored and didn't want to acknowledge it, just things in my past that I thought I had confronted and dealt with. But these were deep-rooted issues. And um, he shined the light on it a couple days ago. And I've just, the last day or two, I've just kind of been looking at the situation. And, and I'm really grateful for it because he's shining the light. So now that I can see what's going on, I can take it by the horns, mm -hmm. confront it. I already know I have victory because of what he did on the sure. cross. Absolutely. And now I can um, be healed, restored, yeah. get back what the enemy tried to steal from me. Mm. And um, it had to do with relationships and mm. abandonment issues and things like that. So now um, I know this is my year. He wants to restore me. So awesome. Thank I you give for him sharing. praise for that. Thank you for sharing. All right, I'm eager to teach. You're not eager to share. Let's go. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. So let me set up again. I sort of do this every time I pop in for this series on Ephesians. If you remember, um, Ephesians chapters 1 through 3 primarily are doctrinal in nature. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, uh, who's the writer of Ephesians? Paul. In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is laying out, here are the things you need to believe, the things you need to know. They're doctrines that are, that are key doctrines of our faith. 
And so Paul moves from chapters 1, 2, and 3 as he's laying out these doctrines and into chapters 4, 5, and 6, he gets practical. And he says, here are how these doctrines apply to your life. Here are how these doctrines make a difference in your life. And you need to know these things, these doctrines, you need to know them and understand them and believe them so that you can live this way. Because knowing those things and trusting in those things and who he is gives us the strength, gives us the ability to fight, to be restored, to know what he has already done on a cross for us, what God has done in raising his son from the dead and giving us victory and how that applies to our life and how that gives us the hope and the faith that we need. So our passage tonight will begin in verse 17, but it begins with this very penetrating analysis of our heart and of our condition. And so... We have to think, why does he do this? Why does Paul, even in the midst of this practical, say, I want you to know who you are. I want you to know what's going on in the depths of your heart before I tell you what you're supposed to do. I think he needs us to understand, and we need to be reminded over and over again of the root of the problem that we face, the root of the issues that we face. And so Paul's going to do this and sort of get to the root issue before he gets to some of the practical things. You'll see this in the the next few weeks. The practical things that follow this passage we're looking at tonight are things like how to manage your anger, how to manage your money, how to deal with your sexuality in this culture, how to deal with your time, how to deal with the tongue. And he says you need to be aware of, of futile thinking, of thinking the wrong way and fighting this battle That is the Christian life in the wrong strength. So a lot of you know we've been fighting a battle with our daughter. Last Monday, we got an MRI. We had an MRI done. We took Kate in, and it was one of those long processes, again, where she has to fast all morning long. And then, of course, the machine's a little bit late, so she has to fast even longer as we wait because they're late. And then we get the test done. Um, That morning before we left for the hospital, we got an email that said, "Um, your doctor is sick. So there's a good chance you won't get the results of the MRI tonight. So we had sort of prepared ourselves and we were like, of all the times to get sick, he never gets sick. But we just sort of prepared ourselves. Okay, we may not hear tonight, but we were still hoping. Monday night goes by, um, no word. So Tuesday we think, okay, we're going to get the word today. We're going to get a phone call. So we're sort of anxiously awaiting all day, all day, all day, no phone call. But we got a, an email at the very end of the day. Uh, And then after that, a phone call late, late, late in the day. And it just said this. Um, uh, The nurse said, look, the doctor said, I cannot call you unless the news is like the same or better than last time. Um, There's no new tumors, but there's something that lights up. And, And so he'll meet with you tomorrow. And so all I heard was the doctor said, don't call unless there's no news or better news. But all my wife heard was something lit up. So men and women, you know, our ears are attuned to different words. I grabbed onto the first part. She grabbed onto the last part. So Tuesday night was not a very good night's rest. And Wednesday morning we went in there and all we cared about hearing was, what's that thing lighting up? What are you talking about? Get in here. Explain it to us. Because we know the proper diagnosis is fundamental for the proper treatment, right? And so... We're nervous. We're sitting there. We're waiting. We're waiting. He comes in. He has a smile on his face. We're like, that can't be bad. And he real quickly just said, look, good scan. It looks really good. No new growth. But what about that part that's lighting up, doctor? And he's like, that just, that just, it's when they inject the dyes. It's don't worry about it. We're not concerned about that at all. So praise God. We got a good scan. Yeah. 
And, and we've, been, we've been celebrating. Some of you said you were dancing with us. And we're, we're doing all those things. Dancing, singing, praising. We're thankful. We're believing that God is a God who is healing, can heal, will heal. We're trusting and believing that he will do that. Um, but, but back to the diagnosis part. The diagnosis is critical in understanding how to treat something. In the physical world as well as in the spiritual world. In, in order to really get the healing, the restoration, in order to get what we really need, we've really got to be able to diagnose where we're at and what's going on. And that is what Paul does here in chapter 4, verse 17. We get the surgeon's report. So let's start reading in verse 17. And Paul says this. So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do. In the futility of their thinking. So this is Paul's interesting way of saying something as strongly as he possibly can. You know in like the New Testament, the gospel accounts, where Jesus was saying something like, Truly, truly, I say unto you. Or if you're King James, he's like, Verily, verily, I say unto you. He says that for extra emphasis. Paul does that here with this word, insist. I insist I insist on it. You need to listen. You need to know what's going on. Every time Paul uses this, it's his way of saying, truly, truly. It's like, listen up, pay attention, know what I'm saying. And Paul goes the next, a, a step even further than this. He's not insisting just based off of who he, he is. He says, I insist on it in the Lord. So there's a few times here in, in the, the writings of Paul where Paul will say, this is something that I'm saying, not God. This is just sort of my words. And this time he is saying, these aren't my words. You need to listen up. These are God's words given to me to tell you specifically. And he says, I insist on, you need to listen to this. And here's what he says. You must no longer live as the Gentiles. So here's a question for you, and I would love your feedback. What does he mean when he's referring to the Gentiles? Who or, or what is he talking about? And, and, and you can raise your hand, and I'll give you even a bigger, broader definition, because throughout the New Testament, the, in the same way, the, the word the world will be used. Don't be of the world. What are the New Testament writers talking about when they're saying, don't be like the Gentiles, don't be like the world? What are they saying? Uh, is he referring to everybody who's not Jewish and unsaved? Okay. Yeah. I definitely think, yeah, maybe I don't know about the Jewish part, but yes. Not believing, not trusting. He's saying don't be like the Gentiles, those who don't believe in God, who, who aren't trusting in Jesus. Like, like what would the pattern of the world, what would the habits and the practices of the world be? You can just shout some of these out. Like worldly thinking, what, what kind of thinking is that? Greed, lust, what's in it for me, self-centered thinking, pride, what was that, gossip, yes, anger, absolutely, so it's all these things and he's saying this, you, you, need to, you need to understand, that's not the pattern of our lives, that's not how we're supposed to live, that's not how we're supposed to, to, to carry ourselves in this world. Several things are implied in this command. Let me give you three things that are implied by this command. And and let's just talk about them real quick, but one at a time. First is this. Faith in Christ demands a radical change in the lifestyle of the believer from the way they once behaved. 
faith in Christ, it demands a radical change in behavior. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a, a new creation. Old things have passed away and all things are new. There's a radical change. If you are in Christ, there is a change, a transformation that takes place in you. The old is gone. The new has come and has, has, God has created you new. And Paul says in, in this verse, in this passage where he says, you must no longer live like the Gentiles. He says, you need to live this new identity that you have in Jesus Christ. He says, you need to no longer walk like this. And the implication is, is, is here. The audience that Paul is addressing, they used to walk like that. They used to walk in the same way. So he says, you need to no longer walk like that. And the reality is the story of Scripture is every single one of us, every single one of us, we used to walk like that too. We all, we all were born walking that way. And on our own, we head towards anger and pride and lust and selfishness and all those things. And that's the way, apart from Christ, that we walk. And Paul says a radical change is needed. Secondly, he says this. He's, there's, this command deals with the Christian's new relationship to the world. Once as we were part of the world system, we were alienated from God and strangers to his kingdom. But now, now in Christ, we're citizens of God's kingdom. We're members of his body. We've become strangers and pilgrims to this world. And so he says there's a shift that has taken place where your primary identity of where you belong is no longer in this world. It's no longer the people of the world. It's no longer doing the things of the world and, and feeling that that's where you belong. And sometimes when we slip up and we do the wrong things, something inside of us, the Holy Spirit of God, reminds us, that's not who you are anymore. Yeah, we'll still mess up. And yes, we'll still do things that we, we shouldn't, but not for long. Because the Holy Spirit of God is living inside of us and He reminds us, that's not who you are. That's not your identity anymore. You don't belong to the world anymore. Third, this command deals with the Christian's relationship to the culture that they live. And so he's, he's just saying that as these Gentiles or these Jewish people have stepped out and believed, both of these groups, Jewish believers and Gentile believers, are going to face some opposition. They're still going to have the old friends saying, hey, come on, let's go do the things we've always done. And there's a new way of relating to the culture that they're in. There's a new mindset. I said I was going to give you three, but I'm going to give you four, sorry. Uh, Paul maintains also here that the moral conduct is the outgrowth of this mental process. He says, look, that the Gentiles do this in the futility of their thinking. That wrong thinking leads to wrong behavior. Believing the wrong things, thinking the wrong things, allowing our minds to play this tape, this wrong thing, saying the wrong things to us, leads us down the wrong path to making wrong decisions. And the final statement of verses 17 through 19 describes the way which Paul's readers once walked and which the world, the Gentiles, still walk and the way that he's calling these saints at Ephesus to not walk like this anymore. So let's look at verses 18 and 19. Paul says, They are darkened in their understanding and they're separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity 
with a continual lust for more. So there's six things at least in this passage that he says, this is the description of, of the Gentiles. This is a description of how they're living. You don't have to wait for a mic. Just shout out in that passage, those two verses, what are the, some of the things you see as the descriptions? Hardening heart, ignorant, insensitive, separated from God, giving into sin, impurity, lustful, yeah. So, so the six, the way I worded them are this. Number one, your understanding has been darkened. It's the first one that's found there in, in verse 18, that they're darkened in their understanding. And, and what this means throughout Scripture is they're not able to understand fully what God has for them. If, if you were to flip to chapter 5, verse 8, Paul says it this way. Once you were darkness, but now... You are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. It says, apart from Christ in this relationship, there's this part of our understanding that's, in, that's darkened to us and only through Christ and only through His Holy Spirit revealing to us can we go into the light. And can we walk in the light and understand that because part of sin and part of the curse is this understanding is darkened. Separ- Second is this, we're separated from the life of God. That we've been separated. Our sin separates us from the life of God. And we can't experience Him intimately like we were designed. We can't have this loving relationship like we've been designed because of sin. So walking in sin brings alienation. Number three is spiritual ignorance. Now he's not talking about your IQ. He's not talking about what you score on the SAT. He's saying spiritually. The reality of some of the smartest people in the world can be some of the most spiritually ignorant. Not that they're not smart, not that they're not wise by the world's standards, but as you guys know, as you've studied this scripture a lot, the Bible speaks of a worldly wisdom, but it speaks of a much higher wisdom that comes from God and from knowing Him. Number four, it says, you have a hard heart. Number five speaks of sensuality. And this word means unbridled lust. Or shamelessness. And this, the scripture says, leads to a lust for more. Leads to impure acts, an impure heart that craves and desires the things that God calls unclean. But, but let's just take those six things and let's do something that I think is pretty interesting. We take those six things that, that um, Paul says, you can't let this be your thinking. You can't let this be your way of life. And at other places, in those first three chapters, Paul has already dressed, addressed all six of these. So we're going to take one of those topics. We're going to go back to the first three chapters and say, here's how Paul addressed that. First of all, darkened. If we've been darkened, if our understanding has been darkened, here's what Paul has already said about that. Flip over to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. If you're darkened, then this is the prayer that Paul has for you. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know You may know that God would enlighten you so that you could know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. For those who have been spiritually darkened, their understanding is darkened. Paul says, God can bring enlightening. God can open up your eyes. God can allow you to see through his Holy Spirit and see the hope to which he has called you. Because darkness brings things like despair, right? Darkness brings despair because we find ourselves in situations and circumstances that seem overwhelming. 
And it is darkened. And our understanding is darkened. We don't see a way out. But the gospel, Jesus Christ comes and he brings hope. And he enlightens us to understand that even though our circumstances may seem dark and dim and dire, that through God and his power and the riches of his glorious inheritance and his incomparably great power for us who believe, he can enlighten us. Number two, it says we're separated from the life of God. But Paul has said in a couple of places that the separated person, the separated people can come close again. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Verse 13. He says, but now, in Christ Jesus, those of you who are far away, you've been brought near through the blood of Christ. Those of you who are far away, you've been brought near, not because of your activity, not because you decided to do something. You've been brought near because of the blood of Christ. We all just sing the song together. Jesus paid it all. Every bit of us coming close to God is because of who Jesus is and the price that he paid for us. He did it for us. And we can come close. Ephesians 3 verse 12 says it this way. In him, that's Jesus, and through faith in him, we may approach God in freedom and confidence. Once we were separated, but now... In Jesus and through faith in him, we can not only come near, we can approach boldly and confidently before God. And we can pray bold prayers and ask great things of God. And he listens and he hears us. And there doesn't have to be this distance because in Jesus, we've got the right and the ability to come near to God our Father. For those who are spiritually ignorant... Ephesians 1, 9 says this. And he, talking about Jesus, he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. And so that once we were walking spiritually ignorant, but in Christ, God has made known to us. He's opened up the door. He's revealed the mystery. He's made it known according to his good pleasure. Speaks of a hard heart. For those with a hard heart. Ephesians 3.16 says this. This is again a prayer that Paul is praying for the believers of Ephesus. And, And you can receive it and I can receive it as a prayer. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So for those with a hard heart, there's this prayer from Paul that that God would would reveal his glorious riches and strengthen us with his power in our inner being and that Christ would dwell in our hearts. The fifth thing that was in that verse, that passage was sensuality, was lust. Ephesians 2 verse 3 says this. You guys didn't know it was a Bible drill, right? But fortunately, it's only like two pages. You're just like back and forth. Ephesians 2, 3. All of us also lived among them at one time, meaning we lived in that old way, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. So, so at that point, if we just stopped, that would be a pretty depressing verse, right? 
We were objects of wrath. We were living in this way, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, gratifying the desires and the lusts. And the desires, they were, they were leading us through life. And if we just stopped there, that would be depressing and hopeless. But he goes on and he says, but I have this picture of Josh dancing up on stage a few weeks ago talking about the butts of the Bible. I could, wish I could get that image out of my head. Um, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And so we don't have to go by the, 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 the course that we used to walk in. We don't have to be living this life where our sinful desires and lusts are, are drawing us all the time because God, who is, has great love for us and is rich in mercy, He has made us alive. He can help us overcome. And the last one that we read was this, this issue of impurity or uncleanness. And Ephesians 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, verse 7 says this. In Him, meaning Jesus, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. Can I get a, oh yeah, an amen or something? In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins. There's a couple of them. A couple of you excited about that. In accordance with the riches of God's grace that He lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. And so if you find yourself, because sometimes even we as Christians, we begin to stray and we don't, we don't maintain that intimate relationship. We're not pursuing God like we want to. And, and there's sometimes we just need a wake-up call because even we, we begin to, to stray back and, and our understanding is darkened and we're, we're feeling like those walls are there, like, like we've, the sin is separating us from God. And you know why we feel that? Because it does. Because it does. And we feel the, the confusion because our sin has got us all messed up and, and, and we don't know what to do and, and our hearts are growing hard and calloused and, and, and we're struggling with lust and these impure desires and, and, and we wonder what do we do? That's why Paul wrote the first three chapters of Ephesians to say, if you're struggling with all those things, get back over here and know who he is and know what he's already done for you. Believe it and walk in it. Understand how great his love and how great his mercy is. And then apply that. Allow God to apply that to your life. So that you can walk in the truth of who you are. Not in futile thinking. You know what futile thinking does? Futile thinking is, is it, it allows even a Christian to say, I sinned again, I messed up. God could never forgive me again. You know what that is? That's futile thinking. It's not what the scripture says. God, God doesn't say in the scriptures, I'll give you three chances. And if you can't get it right in three chances, it's over with, right? Unfailing love. Mercy that never ends. We combat the futile thinking with the word of God, with the truth of God. So now we go into verse 20. And verse 20 begins to talk about the escape, the remedy. And, and you know the answer. I mean, it's like Sunday school. If, if in doubt, you just say the answer is Jesus. Well, that's what he's going to say. The answer is Jesus. It's all about Jesus. Verse 20 says this. You know how he's talking about those other people that, that come to Christ with futile thinking. They're approaching God the wrong way. They're, they're approaching God based on how they think God is going to respond. That's futile thinking. This is what Paul's saying. That's not how you approached 
Verse 20. I mean, that's literally what he says. You, however, you did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You didn't learn that way. You didn't learn to to navigate this this Christian walk in feudal thinking. You learned another way. And Paul's going to explain what that way is. And and, and I just need to point something out to you. Most of your translations, um, they have a wrong word in there. And that doesn't mean you've got a bad Bible. I've got that Bible myself. But when they begin to translate it into from Greek into English, and you know you had the King James Version a few hundred years ago, and then they start updating those into modern English, sometimes little words slip in, and sometimes these stinking little prepositions mess us up. These stinking little prepositions mess us up. So you have a version probably that says something like, you heard of him, verse 21. Surely you heard of him. But it probably would be better translated to say, surely you heard him. What's the difference between you heard of him or you heard him? Personal experience. experience. Don't you think it's different if you say, you know what? I've heard of Jesus. Or if you come on this side and you say, I heard Jesus. That's a little word, right? But it makes a big difference. Oh, I've heard about Jesus. Yeah, he's that guy the Bible talks about. He's a good teacher, right? I've heard of him. Versus I've got a copy of the scriptures and, and I got my Experiencing God book and I begin to pray and I begin to seek God and I heard Jesus. Do you know Jesus wants you to hear him? He literally says that in his word. His sheep hear him and know his voice. And so let's not pay attention to that word of because it's not really the best translation. It really should read. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. So if you have heard him and if you have been taught by him, you need not and you must not walk in the futility of your thinking. Jesus says this, that the hour is coming and the hour now is. When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear it will live. And we're no longer alienated from the life of God that Jesus has spoken this truth and diagnosed our disease and is now given as the remedy, as the cure. And as a teacher to everyone who hears his voice. Look at that. In verse 21, he says this. You were taught in him. You were taught in him. One of the metaphors throughout Scripture that that often is overlooked is the metaphor of a relationship to Jesus as teacher to student, as rabbi to disciple. And the Scriptures speak about this over and over and over again. And and it says we, we do have the relationship where the Scriptures talk about a father and a son and that kind of relationship, a father and a daughter, the parental kind of metaphor. But it also talks about the student talking about a correct understanding of who he is. In order to follow him, you have to know him, not just know of him. And so here we're, we're, we're giving that passage in, in something like John ten sixteen, where it says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And if there's this ability as we're studying the scriptures and studying the word, and even as sometimes we're listening to people explain the word of God, where it's not 
the person's voice we hear, but it's rather God's voice through Scripture speaking to us. And we're hearing not some pastor or some teacher, but we're literally hearing the voice of God lead and guide and direct us into truth. And Paul reminds his readers here that he's not teaching them anything new. He's reminding them. He's reiterating what they've already learned. And it's saying this, that Jesus is more than just a teacher. Look what it says in verse 20 one more time. You heard of him. I'm sorry, I did it again. You heard him. I need to scratch that word. I need white out. Get that word of out of there. Surely you heard him and were taught in him accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. The truth that is in Jesus. Here's the, the truth of what scripture says. Jesus is the way, the truth and the so it's not just jesus teaching you the truth it's not just paul teaching you the truth it's jesus teaching you him leading you not on a way but to a person to himself it's him not dictating here's the step you should take this 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 it's him drawing you near saying the best way to know the will of god is to know god himself and to draw near and to know him And Jesus is the truth, and to come to him in faith is to come from death to life, from condemnation to justification, from sin to sanctification, from ignorance to wisdom. And here's the point of all this. You cannot come to faith in Jesus without changing your thinking. When the scripture tells us over and over again, here's how you come to Jesus. The first step is you repent. Repent and believe. The word repent literally means this. It literally means change your mind. You can't come to Jesus just off an emotional experience where you think, oh yeah, that sounds good. I'm at a tough place in life. I need some help. You come to him by repentance, by by understanding my way has been the wrong way. And repentance means I'm changing my mind. I'm believing something different. I believe that I'm no longer in control. I'm no longer in charge. I'm no longer trying to save myself because he's already made a way. He's already paid a price. And we change our minds, repentance, and we believe, we trust, we, we accept that what he has done on the cross for us is sufficient. Look at verse 22. So he's reminding them, you, the way that you came to Christ was a way of repentance, a way of faith, a way of believing. Verse 22, you were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires. Saying that our deceitful desires, our lustful desires, they corrupt us. They lead us astray. It's like we decay from the inside. It's what those deceitful desires do. And even on the outside, we may be holding it together for a while, but inwardly we're wasting away. So what does Paul mean? And you guys can raise your hand or he shouted out. What does Paul mean when he says, put away your old self? Okay, there has been that transformation. He's saying, reminding them a transformation has taken place. What, what else does he mean? Put away your old self or, or how do you put away your old self? What's he talking about? This, this is going to be good. So we need a microphone for this. Put away that self that you relied on instead of relying on what Jesus did on the cross totally. Yep, absolutely. Okay. 
Yes. Every time, every time you have a thought that is in conflict with what Jesus wants you to believe, it's turning around and getting that thought out of your mind. Absolutely. What else? Put away your old self. You're a new creation. Yeah, you died of the old self. Look down in verse 25. He says this word again. Put off falsehood. Put it off. So it's, it's sort of like a garment. He's talking almost in this language of clothing. You take it off. You, you put off falsehood. And he says, put on something else. Or, or speak truthfully to your neighbor. Put off the lying. Put off the, the falsehood of speaking. And put on speaking truthfully. So he says on one level that this idea of putting off is, is our practices. It's our actions. It's the things that we do. We're to put off those old ways of doing things. Colossians 3, you can just note this real quick. Colossians 3 verse 8 says, but now you must put off all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off, you've put off, your old self with its practices. So it talks on one level about our practices. The things we do, we're to put them off, to stop doing them. But it's more than that. It's not just the things we do that he says to take off. And this passage in Colossians hints to that. It's also the motivations, the reasons we do things we do that we're to stop. Not just stop yelling at my kids... Or my dog, that's a better analogy. Not just stop doing that. Stop the anger that's from here that causes me to do that. He's not just talking only about your activities like it's some moralism, some kind of self-help manual. Here's the best way to do it. Just stop screaming. He's saying, whoa, whoa, get, get deep down. Why are you screaming? Why are you raging out at someone when they cut you off on the 202 and God forbid they made you 15 seconds later for your appointment and you just went off. What's the root of that? He's saying it's more than just your practices. It's, it's the old self is all that whole bundle of who you are. It's the whole bundle of who you are, your attitudes, your emotions, your practices, that all of us used to be and some of us still struggle with now. He's not just saying put off the old self in that he's saying act right. Be a good little boy. Be a good girl. He's, he's going much deeper than that and saying if you really have repented. If you've really changed your mind. If you've really believed in who Christ is. It's more than just this superficial I'm changing my actions. It's the motivations of my heart. The purposes of why I do these things have changed at the core. And so on the contrary, look in verse 23. So we're to put off those things in verse 23. To be made new in the attitude of your minds. And to put on the new self. Created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. We're to put on the new person. Colossians 3.12 talks about this new person we should be. And, and here, Colossians 3.12, Paul says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and loved, <clears throat> put on compassion, kindness, lowliness, meekness, and patience. 
So why doesn't Paul just come straight out and say that when you believe on Jesus, you must get rid of bad attitudes and habits and build some new attitudes and habits? Why does he write this way in verses 22 through 24? And the answer is simply, Christianity is not some religion or some way of thinking that's just moral self-improvement course. It's not, I'm just going to change. I'm just going to make myself better because I'm going to work hard and do better than I did last year. That's my New New Year's resolution. I want to do better, be better than I was last year. Now he says in verse 24, we put on this new person. We put on who Christ wants us to be, who he calls us to be, who he will empower us to be if we will allow him. To where we begin to think about him in a new way. We begin to feel towards Him and towards others in a new way. To begin to act in such a way that God is being displayed. My heart is being displayed. Heart for God. Through the things I say, the things I do. And the key for this passage, I believe, is found in verse 24. I'm 23 when it says, Be made new. In the attitude of your minds. Be made new. Be created anew. In the attitude of your mind. In Colossians 3, 2 through 3, Paul has said it like this. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Fill your mind with the truth of heaven is what he's saying. It's just like that passage we read earlier, Ephesians 1, verses 18 and 19, that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we might know what is the hope to which God has called us and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power. He wants us to see and he wants us to know and he wants us to experience him so that We can know and see and experience and love Him. So He can be glorified. And then and only then are our lives changed. Then and only then are we empowered to be who He has called us to be. And He's never saying, I want you to fix yourself. I want you to try to get your act together. He's saying, if you will repent, if you will believe, if you will trust in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, God will transform you. And as you begin to try and attempt to live off, live out what he's done, as you begin to try and attempt to put off these habits and these desires, God actually gives you the strength and the empowerment to do what only he can do through you. And so he's not saying, I want you to try harder. I want you to clean it up. He's saying, I want you to really trust Christ more fully than you ever have before. I want you to really believe and and still repent. And, And the thing is, some of us think that repentance is something we did once way back then. And now we're good with God and we've got to go on. But repentance is a call day after day after day. We live a life of repentance. We mess up. We don't try to ignore it and say, well, I'll try harder next time. No, we repent. We go back and we say, God, I'm sorry I messed up. If we've offended someone else, we say, I'm so sorry I've messed up. Will you forgive me? We repent fully. And by showing that we're doing that, we're showing that we believe and we trust. And God gives us that strength to go on another day. But he says here in this verse 23, be made new in the attitude of your minds, that God would transform our minds. And I think for me, the the greatest passage in Scripture that speaks to this 
is Romans 12. And we're going to end there. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 12, I want us to just, just get this as we leave. So in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 23, Paul says that we are to be made new in the attitude of our minds. That's, he's talking about the motivational structure to be renewed. Why we do what we do, our purpose in life would be made new. Romans 12, verse 1, this is what Paul says. And I'm going to just read it to you. And I urge you, brothers, I urge you, sisters... In view of God's mercy, I I urge you to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God, because this is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, His good, pleasing, and perfect will. Let's pray. God, I pray tonight that that truth and that scripture would go deep into our hearts and that you tonight would transform us and renew our minds. And God, that we would make the commitment to study your word, to repent from the things we need to repent and to believe the things that we need to repent and that you would transform us by renewing our minds and the the motivations of our hearts would be changed. And we we would understand on one hand our diagnosis It's really worse than we thought. But we would also understand the remedy, the cure, is better than we ever imagined. And there is nothing that we can do that would separate us from your love. And there is nowhere we can go in our life or stay away for no amount of time that we exhaust your infinite grace and your infinite mercy. So tonight I pray, renew us, transform our minds. Let us truly experience you. And God, as we do that, we will be able to test and approve what your will is, your good and pleasing and perfect will. And a lot of us in this room will be able to hear in our spirits, even as we obey, well done, good and faithful servants. That is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks for letting me be here with you guys tonight. Have a great week.